This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hi, and welcome to part two of our HIPAA liability podcast. I'm Shaylin Watkins. Um, I'm an associate at Better Price. Uh, and here at a Better Price, I am in our healthcare regulatory practice group, um, and I have a history of working um, in the state and federal government, um, representing state agencies with relation to HIPAA violations. Um, I'd love to get started. Today, we're speaking with John Moore of Clearwater Consulting. John, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Shailen. My name is John Moore, as mentioned, and I am uh, our chief risk officer here at Clearwater. Also have responsibility for our consulting team, as well as our customer success team. We're um, some of the leading providers in cybersecurity and compliance, particularly to uh, focus on healthcare and, and obviously HIPAA compliance is a big part of that. Awesome. And John, it's nice to talk to you again. I think one of the most fun parts about this podcast is you and I have now seen each other when I'm consulting you for my clients. We've now seen each other when we're um, against each other at odds a little bit. Um, (laughs) And then we've seen each other when we just want to move together and start educating people. So um, this is going to be a fun, this is going to be a fun podcast. Yeah, we've definitely been on um, all sides of the table uh, when it comes to healthcare, cybersecurity, and compliance. Uh, that's for sure. And I think it's important to talk about kind of where your practice kind of steps in at Clearwater. Um, much like mine, I often find myself sometimes in an actual deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the other side, there's operational compliance issues where an existing client might just have some questions going forward. Um, And then on the other end, you know, they get a letter from a regulator and they're on high alert and they call you and I and we have to figure out what's going on, right? Yep. Certainly uh, for us, it's all of those things. I mean, historically here at Clearwater, we as an organization got our start uh, really focused on HIPAA compliance following the the High Tech Act when, when HIPAA compliance started to get some teeth associated with it, um, really around security role privacy uh, rule, policy procedures, uh, imp- helping organizations complete some of the required activities like risk analysis was a huge part of uh, Clearwater's history uh, when we first started out. Um, more recently, we really expanded our services and, and uh, everything up to and including uh, providing the design, implementation, and operation on an ongoing basis of organizations, HIPAA security and compliance operations. And and uh, as you mentioned, we're kind of full life cycle. A lot of times we're being asked to uh, evaluate organizations, whether that's diligence on the on the front end or preparing organizations for diligence on the back end um, or, you know, everything in the middle as well, really helping them kind of implement programs. And, and unfortunately, sometimes uh, and unfortunately for those organizations coming in after they've had some sort of incident, uh, helping them and they're preparing their response to the Office for Civil Rights and uh, working with their council to do that, you know, big continues to be a, a big part of what we do. 
Right. And to date, um, we're halfway almost through 2023. Um, OCR has been teasing us with changes to HIPAA. Um, there is a proposed rule that's supposed to go on the final rule sometime this year. You want to talk about um, some of the new changes to HIPAA we're supposed to be expecting this year? Sure. So I, for me, for the most part, I, I kind of lump these things into two buckets. And I think that they're part of the uh, or representative of the ongoing sort of policy thinking from a federal government perspective. I think again, going back to, to HIPAA, High Tech Act, I think there was this belief that if we could just digitize healthcare information, it would flow freely and we would get a reduction in cost and an improvement in care. And, uh, you know, the billions, I think, was spent on that, you know, the proning interoperability, meaningful use initiatives um, to to facilitate that. And I think that more recently there was a there was a recognition that there was additional work that needed to be done in order to facilitate that uh, flow of information. And you saw the information blocking uh, activities from regulations come out. And I think this the the HIPAA, at least for the most part, the HIPAA changes are aligned with that as well. I see, you know, there's a number of changes, um, proposed changes anyway, associated with facilitating the exchange of information between, let's call it third parties involved in the broader healthcare ecosystem. Uh, and then there's uh, changes that are intended to facilitate really the right of access or making it easier for um, patients to get access to their their uh, information as well. And so there's they kind of fall into those those buckets and there's a number of, of specific um, proposed changes anyway that that uh, fall in there but but for the moment part there's those two buckets there's some transaction different uh, transaction code differences as well uh, potentially but those where I see the main differences. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the access piece is, sometimes the easier piece to conceptualize, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that individuals have a right to access to their health information. It's just somehow providers miss that. Um, and so there needed to be some tidying up of the rule. Um, and then the second bucket, I think, is a little bit more fact-specific and why we have folks like Clearwater here to help. Yeah. <laughs> um I just wonder from a practice point, what's the scariest thing, like the worst thing you hear or like you could hear a client come to you and say, let's say one, a person who's just getting, tipping their toes into the healthcare mm -hmm. business. Right. And then two, someone who's been around for a little bit, but is just getting started for the first time with Clearwater. Sure. So, um, you know, for the organizations, let's say that that are new to healthcare, there's a couple different scenarios we see. We see a lot of, you know, technology startup business associate type organizations that um, are targeting solutions in, in the healthcare space, particularly during COVID. There was a big uh, increase in those types of organizations. And, and for them, it, it, it's um, it, from a business associate perspective, it, it's really a, a, it's a realization that they've, now found themselves in a regulated industry. And, and a lot of times for those folks, the first realization of that comes when their customers, typically providers, are asking them to sign a business associate agreement, uh, you know, promising to follow all of the HIPAA security rules. And on top of that, 
sending them some sort of questionnaire or security evaluation to understand uh, what security controls they have in place to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the healthcare information and won't move forward with them uh, from a from a contracting perspective unless they're satisfied with their responses. And that can be a, a big eye-opener to, to someone or, or to an organization that's new to healthcare. Uh, in the provider space, it's it's a it's a little more complex from a compliance perspective. Obviously, as you're aware, you know, much more um, regulation around the privacy rule and 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 uh, breach notification rules that come into play. Uh, and and making sure that all of those are in all of those policies and procedures that support compliance in, in those different areas uh, are in place. We'll see this a lot. We get a, we do a lot of work with, um, for example, um, physician practice management groups. A lot of times they're private equity backed physician practice management groups. They're doing roll ups of of um, small healthcare practices. And a lot of times they're rolling up these small healthcare practices and they, uh, those practices themselves are not very mature when it comes to HIPAA compliance. And so, you know, they're trying to, to instill a certain level of discipline across their, their portfolio of practices. And, and so we'll do a lot of work uh, for them, not just on the security side, but also on the privacy side as well. And, and understanding how they can, can have a, a discipline and consistency in the application and compliance with HIPAA. And, and uh, you know, for in regard to the changes that are, are happening, uh, you know, making sure that there's there's appropriate training in place that everyone's trained, making sure that there's appropriate policies and procedures in place, making sure that things like the, that the um, time limits around right of access to patient records, that they're going to be able to meet those. And, and uh, you know, that's getting harder. It was already hard for a lot of smaller practices to, to meet those um, requirements in the course, the, the expectation is that they're going to cut the timeline from 30 days to 15 days in, in the updates to the HIPAA privacy rules. So that's going to, uh, I think, going to continue to be a challenge for especially small organizations. I think all the changes are particularly problematic for, for smaller organizations. There's a cost associated with all of these things. And and the more complexity and cost you have, the the harder it is for smaller organizations to comply. I think we saw, uh, particularly in the right of access, the cases, I think there's been like 40 fines now in cases where, or I think it's actually over 40 now, that um, organizations that have uh, not met their obligations and right of access. And I think at least 50 or 60% of those are very small, typically very small practices that struggle with that. Right. And um in my past, having been assistant regional counsel for HHS, when I was representing OCR, I remember seeing some of these kind of policy changes going towards um, the access arena. But I think if there's any indicator, and tell me how you feel about this, um, if there's any indicator of how the government is kind of tipping its head, um, it's that they want us to know that they think privacy is paramount um so it doesn't matter how small you are it doesn't matter how few patients you have um you are responsible for securing the data you create and store um yeah i'd I'd say it's an interesting conundrum um for the government in many ways like so on the one hand um, there's this recognition and, and policy goal to 
reduce the cost associated with healthcare and to improve the quality of that care by helping people have access to information, make informed decisions, et cetera. And, um, and so there's a, there's a need to, to make that information avail- readily available and, um, and easily available uh, while simultaneously this desire, and, and this started, you know, at the origins of HIPAA with the security rule, privacy, breach notification rules to, to this recognition that, hey, you know, we're, while we're digitizing healthcare, we're making it, uh, making it potentially easier to access, easier to exchange, easier kind of flow between individuals and organizations. Um, but there's a recognition that with that comes a risk. And the, and the risk, of course, is uh, associated with the privacy, personal privacy of that information and the implications of a breach of that privacy for the individual uh, and, and the security around that. So what what what's reasonable and appropriate from a security perspective? Now, when I, I think, you know, from a privacy role, uh, I don't see much difference necessarily in the enforcement depending on the size of the organization. I think from a security perspective, there's this notion that I need to have the controls in place that are reasonable and appropriate for my organization. And, and that can be that can be to a certain degree different for, let's say, a, a small um, healthcare practice with a couple doctors in it versus an extremely large um, healthcare organization like an IDN or something like that with multiple hospitals and things. There, they, there's just, I think there's a, a uh, rational realization on the part of, of OCR in particular that you're just not going to have the resources necessarily available to that small practice for um, for security purposes that you would have in the large practices. And I think that um, to, to a, I don't know whether we'll talk about this later, but there's, you know, if you, if you think about the, the um, regulations that came out around recognized security practices and in particular 405D, um, in 405D itself, the the practices are broken down by um, size of the organization. So I think there's a recognition certainly there that that there's there's um, some differences in, in what's expected uh, from different types and sizes of organizations. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. Certainly around the privacy, um, it's clear that it doesn't matter if you're a sole practitioner or a, a large IDN, the, there's an expectation that you're going to comply with the privacy rules in particular. So let's um, get into some of these horror stories. Um, You and I kind of talked before we spoke today about um, some of the recent action that's come out of OCR. Um, And I want to talk first about um, the incident in Pittsburgh with Mm -hmm. the small practice, which is an access issue. And I think that also kind of gets you to your 405D um, point that you were just just mentioning, you know, I think 405D contemplates um, the size of the practice and also considers that when we're talking about what will the financial penalty be um, in part. And I think it also kind of overflows here into the access arena as well, where we're seeing um, this small scale counselor out of pittsburgh mm-hmm. um who receives a financial penalty of fifteen thousand dollars um he's licensed to provide psychotherapy services um and at first glance i guess um a parent came in and requested his um ch- child's medical records um 
and did not receive them within 30 days. Um, the parent complained to OCR and OCR provided technical assistance. Then the parent requested the medical record again and did not receive it another 30 days later and complained again to OCR. And by the time of the second request, OCR says, all right, we've already given technical assistance, time for a financial penalty um, and require a corrective action plan um, to be put in place um, for that $15,000 penalty. Um, if you're dealing with a counselor, even if it's a small scale psychotherapy services um, location and you hear this story, where, where were the red flags? Well, you know, there's a, there's a couple things in, in this that are just, you know, very typical of what, what we're seeing versus the right of access case. So first of all, anyone can file a complaint under HIPAA pretty much at any time. And you can just go on the web and to OCR and do that. And so they get, I think they're getting, forget the number, it's some crazy number of increase in the number of complaints over time. But there's a, there's a lot of complaints that, that are filed. Um, and in this case, uh, we know that for the last three years, four years or so, um, OCR has really been focused on this right of access initiative. And so if you're if you're an organization and um, you have that complaint, you get that letter from OCR and and technical guidance is always a funny thing uh, in regard to what their guidance is. Usually their guidance is a reminder of your obligations, at least in my experience. So, you know, you get that you get that. Let's call it technical guidance, a reminder of your obligations, and, uh, you know, ignore you ignore those things at your own peril. Uh, you know, just generally speaking, if you've gotten a notification from OCR where they're either requesting information or, or, or reminding you of your obligations, you, you, you ignore that again at your own peril. And, and I think this is a case where that happened. And, you know, I don't, don't know exactly some of the details behind this. There may have been, you know, some underlying issues with the the family and and who had parental rights and assorted other things, which may have played somewhat of a role. But nevertheless, once you get that, once you know you've gotten that OCR notification, I think that uh, unless you're prepared to to fight it on some other grounds, you best comply. And and clearly that wasn't the case here. Now, you know, in this in the cosmic scheme of OCR penalties, fifteen thousand dollars is is not much. But again, remember this is probably a sole practitioner, and and uh, and this is what we've seen over the last few years is a lot of these right of access cases. I think it's 40, 43 of them in the last few years, and and uh, in in many, if not most cases, they're very small practices, maybe single practitioners or a few practitioners in the practice, and uh, and fines that are you know smaller as a result. Yeah, and I'll even say on the deal side now when I'm seeing things like this, we're going through our diligence. We've asked for, you know, evidence of policies and procedures, um, any communications you've received from the government regarding um, any security incidents or right of access issues. And then we'll get the provider who says, oh, there was a letter, but it was no big deal. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Okay, dude, every time you get a letter, it is a big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've had one time where I've seen them say, well, this isn't the normal course. And it's never the normal course for OCR to just be knocking on your door. Um, 
I think I think that's my biggest takeaway um, yeah, from situations like this. It's funny you say that. I, I was just um, talking with some other folks and on another HL podcast specifically around diligence and and uh, the one of the scenarios I proposed was exactly that, where they said, "Well, you know, we haven't." really had any problems. We did get this one letter from OCR, but it's not a big deal, you know, because I've heard that myself, you know, it's the kind of the downplaying of the significance of that sort of uh, correspondence. (laughs) Right. And I think one thing that we also don't put enough stock in is that OCR is kind of keeping that ledger of how many times it's contacted you, right? So you're starting to demonstrate systematic non-compliance when they have got to come back more than one time to discuss an issue with you. Um, So even if it's very minor and there's only one individual who's complaining, if another individual makes a very similar complaint, um, that's still grounds um, for an understanding of a systematic noncompliance issue. Yeah, I I think that there's a, you can be lulled into a sense of security from OCR because they'll, you know, they'll oftentimes send you something and then you, you don't really hear from them for a significant period of time. You think, well, everything's great. Um, when in many cases, that's not the case, you know, unless and until they've told you specifically that, um, you know, that they're, they've reviewed things and they're not going to take any additional action. Uh, you're not off the hook. And, 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 you know, I've seen people waiting significant periods of time between correspondence from OCR thinking they're they're fine when in fact they're definitely not. Well, let's talk about another case study that's um, on our recent rolls of um, what's happening um, with OCR. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, Banner Health had to settle a security rule violation for $1.25 million. Were you following that? A little bit. I had actually, to a certain degree, somewhat forgotten about it because it happened, at least the events you know, associated with it, it happened quite a long time ago. And and um, and uh, they had subsequently settled a class action suit again years ago. Uh, so sort of had, had gotten off my radar when, um, when the announcement came out. I, I had to remember what had transpired. <clears throat> right, definitely. So the incidents definitely occurred in 2016 and that's when some hackers gained access to the systems at banner health um, which is based out in phoenix arizona um i think the hacker scenario is you know one that we all kind of understand we've seen um ransomware on television we we know what it looks like when your systems are getting taken over um here there was two point Eight one million individuals who were impacted by this um, this hack, and so their names, addresses, date of birth, social security numbers, claims information, lab results. I mean, medications, diagnoses. I the list could go on forever. Yeah. Um, and yeah. eventually, OCR basically determined that noncompliance was a contributory factor in the data breach, um, based on a need for thorough um, risk analyses and vulnerabilities to the system um, and system integrity. Um, so let's talk about, you know, some of the red flags you see there yeah, well, and how does the new HIPAA uh, apply to? Yeah. I mean, in this case, one of the more um, concerning things is they use language like found evidence of long-term pervasive non-compliance. And, and of course you start to see things like that and you start to, 
um, you know, move up the scale in, in regards to what potential penalties are in in play. There's you know, different levels of of, um, of penalties available, depend, tiers of, of penalties available, depending on your knowledge of what the issues are, and kind of ranging from lack of knowledge to just willful neglect. And and uh, you know, when you start to see language like that, that there was more of this systemic noncompliance. Or pervasive noncompliance. That's that's a um, not a good thing, and, and can result in substantially more in, in regard to penalties. But from a from a what they uh, you know what they had not done, it's it's all the usual suspects in a way. I mean, when you look at uh, across time what organizations have failed to do that's resulted in in these types of penalties, it's the same stuff. It's the didn't do the risk analysis, don't have an ongoing risk management plan. Um, insufficient monitoring, uh, you know, lack of training. There's there's these consistent things that that we see over and over and over again, particularly in these circumstances of the breach. And I think one of the things that people still uh, fail to realize is that when I have a breach, it's not, yes, OCR is going to ask questions about the breach and how we responded to the breach, et cetera. But what that really has opened you up to is an investigation of your overall HIPAA compliance program. And, and so, you know, they're going to ask you things like, hey, I want to see your risk analysis. And if you don't have, you know, you can't show that you did a risk analysis, they're going to ding you for that. I mean, it's the, I think it's the the most common next to the, uh, next to policies and procedures, I think, uh, is the most common um, violation of HIPAA. So they're going to go right down the list of all those things that are, you're required to do. And if it's EPHI, now we're talking, you know, security rule, and they're going to go through all of those specific requirements. Did you do the risk analysis? Did you have a risk management plan? Have you done a non-technical and technical evaluation? Have you, uh, you know, do you have, have policies and procedures in place? Have you done your training, et cetera? Uh, and if you haven't, if you haven't done those things and you don't have evidence of those things, well, then you're now we have a violation in addition to the disclosure of the EPHI. Uh, and, uh, you know, in this case, you start to get into the millions of people or patients that uh, have had their their information exposed. I and mean, things like this, uh, the, the impact on an organization from a from a cost of a breach perspective, just the. And just even setting aside the the uh, the penalty here, the class action suit in that case, I think was six million dollars. Um, so you got six million in the class action plus your legal fees in defense of that, and then you got another one point two five million from OCR, and then there's all the all the expense that they're going to have associated with uh, complying with the uh, corrective action plan from OCR, and and um, that's not a trivial endeavor either. It's I, I start believe it or not started my career as a as a criminal defense attorney. And, and uh, when I was first started this, it always sticks in my mind. Um, when I first started, I had um, clients who would tell me that they they'd rather spend the time in jail than be in probation. And I, that just struck me as odd. Like, Oh no, it's much better to get, you do your jail time, you get out. But if you're on probation then you have someone watching you all the time, that's like the cat programs with with um, OCR, right? They're just you're always having to reply and always wait for their responses, and and there's a lot of expense associated with that. That's that's uh, best avoided if at all possible. But in this case, it wasn't. Yeah, definitely, I completely agree. I think when I see this in practice um, on the deal side, 
you know, I automatically am adding these knowledge qualifiers to any representations or warranties that, um, you know, clients are making so they can say, you know, to the best of their knowledge, there has not been an incident and these policies have been implemented. Um, and to, to kind of avoid the question of there being that systematic issue. Um, but then when I'm on buy side, and I think this is my favorite time to hear them say, oh, Clearwater came in and <laughs> did a risk analysis, because then I know I'm going to end up on the phone with you guys, and you're going to be able to just, like, download to me everything that's ever occurred. Um, I think with that in mind, when you have new customers come in, are you automatically conducting that risk analysis? Um, it, it depends. Like, so we, we, uh, we typically, our process is more consultative. So, you know, we have a lot of organizations that come to us for, for different reasons and different types of organizations too. So, we, you know, it's, there's a difference. I think people don't necessarily understand some of the subtleties within the different segments of the healthcare market. There's a very different sort of needs for, let's say a business associate who's uh, some sort of digital health or health IT sort of company versus a large health uh, hospital organization or health plan or, um, you know, that's or small hospitals, critical access kind of hospitals in a rural area. They have they have all sort of different needs to some extent or another and different drivers and, and different um, resources available to them. So for us, uh, you know, what first thing we're trying to understand with an organization is is what it is that they're trying to achieve what are their goals and objectives. And, and that can really vary. We have, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, still a lot of folks who are uh, come to us usually at the recommendation of their attorneys because something's going wrong, right? They, they've, um, they've had some sort of problem or issue and now they're trying to address that. And, and that could be uh, uh, a critical immediate need. You know, they're under investigation by OCR. They need to respond. They need to provide information. That, you know, hey, I need a risk analysis right away, kind of thing. Um, to others who are who are who are let's call it um, thinking more systematically about what they need. And and for those folks, you know, we'll we'll discuss with them what it really means to set up a reasonable and appropriate. Um, security program and, and privacy compliance program that's going to be aligned with the uh, requirements under HIPAA and and with their strategic goals and objectives as an organization. And so, uh, you know, from a prioritization of activity uh, perspective, it really depends um, to a large degree on on what the circumstances are. Some folks, you know, newer folks will start establishing governance, and and so we'll we'll be forming those. Um, uh, committees or, or groups, maybe at the board or senior executive leadership um, level, kind of that governance structure in place. We'll be putting the policies and procedures in place. We'll be doing a, a lot of that foundational work and then move to things like the risk analysis and technical testing and other types of activities that are not just required from a, from a uh, HIPAA compliance perspective, but that are just good practice from a security perspective and and uh, and going to help organizations manage, understand and manage their risk on an ongoing basis because the risk of uh, from a cyber attack, whether you're found to have violated HIPAA or not can be, well, I'm not sure there's any limit on it, right? I mean, you know, if there's organizations, you've seen hundreds of millions of dollars in, in uh, costs yeah. with the breach, uh, you know, and Fortunately, those were, well, obviously those are very large organizations, but we've seen organizations that have gone out of business following a breach because they they simply can't uh, afford the costs associated with it. And one of the things 
too, that that we do now that we have this um, regulation around recognized security practices and and OCR is supposed to take that into consideration if there is a problem. A lot of times uh, what we'll do is, is if we're particularly if we're in a situation where we're able to establish that foundation for a security program, for a compliance program generally, uh, we're going to use those recognized security practices, whether it's a NIST cybersecurity framework or the HICCUP, the Health Industry Cybersecurity Practices 4.5D um, work, uh, either individually or in conjunction with each other to um, to design an appropriate security program for an organization. And, and in the process of doing that, trying to generate the um, evidence or collateral associated with their adoption of those practices so that uh, if and when they would have an incident and OCR sends their letter, um, more often than not now, they'll ask for any evidence of those practices. So we'll want to make sure that our, our clients have that available and can provide that uh, if they if they can demonstrate that they've implemented those practices and had them in place for the previous twelve months, then then we get into the you know potential reduced penalties and reduced scrutiny um, area, which is definitely a positive. Yeah, and so lastly, I want to move us on to another type of you know a uh, possible client, um, the business associate, mm-hmm. um, and talk about what happened in Arkansas. Um, here we have a $350,000 fine from OCR um, based on a business associate's impermissible disclosure of EPHI um, of more than 230,000 individuals. Yeah. So um, this was the Medevolve case. Um, and I mean, what are your thoughts here? Um, how do we even get around the question of the added requirements that some business associates face um, because they also have to report up when one of these, you know, disclosures occur to the covered entity. Yeah. So um, do a lot of work with business associates and this is sort of the, the worst case scenario for an organization like this. And, and it, you know, again, can, can be the sort of situation. It can be the end of them in the industry. It's, it's uh you know, in this case, we had a, a misconfigured FTP server that that allowed, um, I think, access to essentially anyone on the internet to to get um, what was on that server, allowed them to gain access through that server. And and uh, you know, misconfigurations are, is a big problem. The the particular in the cloud organizations that utilize the cloud, it, the cloud is extremely powerful. You can do a lot of things. You can also uh, because of the complexity, have misconfigurations that expose, you know, essentially everything to the internet uh, broadly, and and we've seen that over time be uh, be a problem for healthcare organizations in particular. You know, business associates are, are really interesting. I there's sort of two things that I've seen <laughs> probably move the needle in regard to security and healthcare more than OCR enforcement. Uh, the first of those was um, the the recognition that Third parties pose a particular risk to the to a provider's organizations in particular. So you know you look at the the biggest breaches over the last few years, and and in and I think three years in a row they were business associate breaches. But those business associate breaches, as you point out, get get um, flow up through their their provider customers. So you you got to kind of figure out how that's done, unless they specifically ask the the um, business associate to report directly. So uh, you know, we see that that kind of thing where where it's like 
tossing a pebble into the pond. It just cascades out through all these different customers of the business associate when they have a problem like this. Uh, and, and so there's that, you know, that issue, which, which is problematic for the business associates. And, but it's problematic for the providers as well, because it's, they're in a position where they're trying to understand their risk. And the more they leverage third parties, um, the, the more important it is for them to understand the risk of their third parties. And, and I think earlier I mentioned, you know, the situation with the business associate and suddenly they start getting these questionnaires and, and security surveys and, and maybe um, they're even running sort of some sort of passive tools like security scorecard or BitSight against them and, and coming to them like, look, we found all these, these issues um, with your uh, cybersecurity. And um, that, that focus by, in particular, the the provider community on the risk of third parties has caused uh, business associates to have to really tighten up their security if they want to continue to sell their wares in the marketplace. And we've seen a lot of a lot of um, business associates coming to us for assistance um, because of that particular need. The other thing that I've seen drive a lot of of, of uh, investment in cybersecurity and healthcare is the insurance industry. Cyber liability insurance carriers have gotten far more strict on, on um, what they expect to see uh, before they issue coverage. And, and uh, that's driven a lot of activity as well and investment. But in the, you know, the Medevolve case, it's a, you know, unfortunate circumstances again with a you know, misconfiguration could have happened to anyone. Uh, but again, you know, similar to the, the, the um, banner health case. Well, okay. Uh, you had this misconfigured server, but you're going to get this letter from OCR saying, well, did you do your risk analysis? Do you have a risk management plan? And go going down the list of things you're supposed to have. And in this case, uh, it appears that they did not have many of those things. They didn't have the risk analysis. They didn't have the risk management plan. Um, they didn't have appropriate policies and procedures. Um, they didn't have uh, HIPAA training in place. So all of these things that are required under the HIPAA security rule and, and which a business associate is you know, is obligated to comply with, and they would have been obligated not just from a from a regulatory perspective, but they probably have business associate agreements with all of their customers saying that they're going to be in compliance with these, you know, contractual uh, compliance with all of these um, requirements as well. And they and they just didn't do it, or at least they certainly weren't able to provide evidence to OCR that um, you know sufficient evidence that they had done those things. And 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 here we go with an, you know another penalty for non-compliance. Right. And I think there's two things from what you just said that kind of struck a nerve with me. Um, You're right. Those BAAs do exist. So you have that agreement. And sometimes, you know, failure to comply with HIPAA is enough to nullify the agreement and for them to just pull out their business. So from an operational standpoint, you know, business associates have to be the best of the best. So they're not losing business um, down the line just because of um, a possible instance of non-compliance in the past but then second you noted well unless they have um been delegated the requirement for reporting themselves and that led me to my biggest HIPAA horror story which it's funny we were talking about that before we got started today um of an incident in Houston where you know three hospitals were all under BAAs with a certain a certain entity and um they were the reporting obligation was shift to all shifted to all of the BAAs or the business associates well there was a huge breach um which led to actual PHI going down the streets of Houston um <laughs> like 
trash bags of it just flowing through Houston and ending up in a newsroom. Um, so in that scenario, we were struggling to determine who is responsible for this breach now that the reporting obligation has been passed on to the business associate. Um, we've become aware of this now because the media got a hold of it. Um, so before the business associate or the covered entity could report to OCR at the time, we were getting news reports from Houston. Um, and now every single time I ever see a business associate agreement where the reporting obligation has been passed down to the business associate, I hit the biggest red flags and I just say, stop. <laughs> um, and it's just really interesting because everything is so technical um, when it comes down to integrating the business associates into the overall flow of reporting obligations. Yeah, I don't think it's. Uh, I haven't seen it be that common that that the that the reporting flows down to the business, but it does happen. You know, I, I have seen it. It's not that it doesn't happen. It it, it does, um, and it can be uh, depending on how many business associate agreements the the business associate has negotiated with different organizations. You can it get a bit, you know, if they're not consistent in in how that's uh, been applied and those conditions have been negotiated it can be a bit of a, a mess and a problem. Um, you know, you're, the scenario you gave is a really horrible situation because A, you're hit, you hit the news. And if you hit the news, that means OCR is probably going to notice. So there's going to be an expectation on their part that you're going to report. Um, B, it's amazing how trash bags full of protected health information conveniently always seem to show up at, at, uh, uh, television and other news organizations it's, it's like magnets for that kind of thing apparently <laughs> um so that that happens uh then it's a okay well what's the extent of the breach well i don't know i mean how many how many bags of this did we have where did it you know how where did it flow to who who in the world is trying to figure out all of that that's problematic um you know all of those things are are just uh and yet the clock is ticking right i mean to, to a certain degree on on your reporting obligation and, um, and that, yeah, that's a, not a good scenario at all. I'm not <laughs> sure how you work through that one specifically. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's the perfect place to end. We've got horror stories galore. Um, and I think we've learned our lesson, um, call people like you, uh, in the event that you're unsure. Um, uh -huh. thanks so much, John, for joining me. It's great to catch up again. I hope to see each other again soon. Yeah, that would be great. I'm sure we will. It's um, it's we travel and seem to travel in the same circles now. So well, I'm sure we'll. <laughs> I'll be on one side, the same side, or the other side of the table at some point in the near future. I would imagine. I uh, it's been great talking with you as well. I mean, we could have probably talk for a, another hour just about <laughs> the other things that are happening in hip in HIPAA. I mean, the, the uh, I was just thinking about it the other day that I keep seeing, for example. HIPAA actions brought by uh, Office of Attorney Generals more and more frequently again. And that was something we saw a lot a few years ago, but um, sort of slowed down a bit. But now there's they seem to be one every month or so popping up again. You know, there's that sort yeah. of activity. There's this whole pixel um, tool thing, which is a whole nother uh, challenge and, and uh, difficult to understand, I think, for 
a lot of organizations out there, but could potentially be, I don't know, thousands of, of breaches that may be associated with that. I don't know. Who knows? So, <laughs> you know, a lot happening in this, in this space and, and, uh, you know, kind of going back to some of those changes, we'll see when, when, and if those come out, I would anticipate that, that, you know, it's probably going to be in the next few months. I think that everybody certainly expects that the new updates to come out um, this year and we're running out of this year. Right. Uh, so, so there's going to be, <laughs> you know, a lot of folks are going to need to change their policies and procedures. A lot of training that's going to need to be updated and, and uh, a lot of, uh, procedures and and things that are going to need to be implemented. There's going to be some IT changes, I think, that are going to need to occur to facilitate um, some of the transfers that that uh, information that need to occur. So you know, going to be a lot of activity uh, in the next year or so around organizations uh, addressing these changes to the regulations. And um, it's been a while since we've had that kind of activity around HIPAA. So we'll see yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. Um, Once again, John Moore from Clearwater Consulting, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us here at HLA. Yeah, great talking with you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.